Jesus left this earth 2,000 years ago. Why hasn't he come back yet? Would you be surprised to know that he actually told us exactly why he hasn't come back? I'll let you in on that secret today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a minister, and for a short time, I was also the church secretary. I stepped into that role because, at one time, our regular church secretary went on a missions trip to Japan— And I knew it would be a few months that she was away, but I didn't know the exact date of her return because I forgot. (laughs) She told me, but I didn't bother to write it down. And by the time she'd been gone for a little while, I was too embarrassed to ask when she was exactly going to be back. Not only did she take off to go halfway around the world, she also left me with a lot of work to do because she wasn't there to do it. And, And come to find out, church secretaries do a whole lot more than just sit around waiting for the phone to ring. So here I am filling in as the secretary with with a list of things to do, and I'm not exactly sure how much time I had left to do it. So in the meantime, I just kind of kept after it, because I didn't know exactly how long I would have to wait until she got back. So I decided I would just stay busy until she returned. It's kind of similar with the return of Christ. He left this earth 2,000 years ago. He said he would be back, but he didn't say when, All he told us was that it would be soon, which means Jesus has a little bit different definition of soon than we do. And that's because he's the eternal God of the universe. So to him, 2,000 years later, it hasn't been that much time. He can still say soon and mean it because it's not that long to him. And we've all waited on the Lord to do something and we know how long it can feel to us. That's because we don't look at things from God's perspective. What is a long time to us might not really be all that long to him. But God's timing is always the best timing, and and what is soon to him might not necessarily be what is soon to us. My wife is a very godly, eternally-minded person. If it's time to go somewhere and she says that she's going to be out to the car soon, you have to be prepared to wait another 2,000 years. And that's just the way it is. It's not her fault. I have this bad habit of you know looking at my watch to know what time it is, Like I said, she's a very godly person who doesn't constrain herself to the temporal limits of this world. How do I know she has a godly perspective? Because her mind works in mysterious ways. So back to what I was saying about being the church secretary. I didn't know exactly when she would be back. So as I said, I tried to stay busy with my tasks that she left for me to do, and I tried to do my best at them, and I was always trying to be ready for her return. The same is true for the return of Jesus. We don't know exactly when he'll be back. Some have tried to figure it out with mathematical formulas. Others have set false dates to try to create a following and rile people up. But those formulas and those dates, I've noticed they're always conveniently right around the corner. And then at the end of the day, none of them have come to pass. All we know is that it's going to be soon. Also, Jesus has left us with work to do until he returns. And so we must always be busy about his business while also being ever ready for his arrival. 
what does this have to do with Ezekiel? Well, let's get into that today. And it's actually going to tie in with why Jesus has not returned yet. But today we finish our third and final outing in Ezekiel chapter 18. And this is my favorite chapter of Ezekiel. That's why I've covered this chapter so slowly. In the first part of the chapter, we talked about how each person is responsible for their own sins. Each person has to make their own decision of whether to follow God. The people of Ezekiel's day had this attitude that their punishment was because of their parents. They had this proverb they would say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Well, God says, we're going to put an end to that. You are not being punished for your parents' sins. You're being punished for your own sins. And yeah, your parents might have started it, but you all kept it going. And so that was what was in the first part of the chapter. Then the second part of Ezekiel 18 is where God establishes that we are not just responsible for choosing God, but also for staying with God. We have a choice to make at any time, whether we would like to walk away. And anytime somebody walks away from God, they always have a choice to walk back to him. Up until the moment of death, a sinner always has a choice to go ahead and get right with God. And that's what was covered in the second part. The, the idea that unifies this whole chapter is that it's providing a defense of God's justice system. Some people don't like God's justice. And, and we have a tendency that we want to bring our own works into it. And we want to divide the world into good people and bad people. And we think the good people should go to heaven and the bad people should go to hell. And God says, it's really not that simple. It's not as simple as good people and bad people. It has to do with what you believe right now. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday because everybody always has a choice at any given time whether they want to follow God today, whether they want to follow God tomorrow. And we would, you know, we he has to make that clear because we'd all kind of like to think that our good works from the past, that they must count towards something, right? <laughs> you know, we'd like to think, well, of course I'm going to heaven because I've done this and I've done that. But our good works don't get us any closer to heaven than the day that we first believed. And I'm, I'm, don't hear me as saying that good works are not important. I mean, for one thing, you get eternal rewards for doing good works. And also, our good works are a sign that somebody is saved. But always remember that those good works do not contribute to our salvation. Salvation started by faith, and it's maintained by faith right up until the day you die. And God says, if you don't like that, too bad. His way is right. Your way is wrong. God is always right, though. It's kind of like that old phrase, people, when they break up with each other, sometimes, you know, one of them will say, it's not you, it's me. Well, God is, is here. He's saying, oh, no, 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 it's you. Because <laughs> God is always right. And you can either agree with God or you can be wrong. And that brings us to this third and last section where one more time, God defends his justice system. So let's read Ezekiel 18, verses 30 through 32. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. So right here is a last call to repentance. He says, turn from your transgressions. And that's a call to everybody because all of us, every single one has transgressions. Come and get a new heart, God says. The offer is open to all. Here are the rules. And God had spent 31 
versus just now laying out all the rules. He says, here are all the rules and here's how to be saved. I've mentioned before that we had a lot of foster kids and most of the time they came from homes that really didn't have a whole lot of rules. They had a lot more freedom before they came to my house. They got to roam the streets or do whatever they wanted back before they lived with me. And so for many of them, crying and screaming, collapsing on the floor to get what you wanted from mom or dad, that was what worked. But then they get to my house, they find out that those tactics don't work with my wife and I. (laughs) Not only that, they suddenly had a whole bunch of new standards to live under. They had to wash their hands when they used the bathroom. They had to take a bath or a shower every day. That was a hard adjustment for many of them to make. With every kid that we ever took in, they would test the rules, and sometimes they had to face consequences for breaking them. But I always tried to make clear to them, I am on your side. I mean, yes, I do have a lot of rules, but I am rooting for you to keep them. I don't want you to fail. I do want you to succeed. I don't actually want to punish you. Yes, I have all these rules that you have to follow, but I am 100% rooting for you to succeed. It's kind of like what Moses said to the people at the end of his life in Deuteronomy 30, 19. He said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. I think about those words a lot because it's what I it's what I feel like I'd like to say to a lot of kids that I've raised. <laughs> Therefore, choose life. Here's your choices, but choose life. Here's the rules. You can follow them or not. You know, it's going to be one way or the other. But I'm really, really rooting for you to choose the right thing to do. And I think a parent, a good parent at least, they need to say things like that to their kids, to not be too harsh. The New Testament doesn't give a whole lot of commands to parents. You know, I wish it did sometimes. I wish it gave more. You get a lot of it in Deuteronomy. or I'm sorry, in uh, Proverbs. But the New Testament... Uh, doesn't have a whole lot of parenting rules and stuff like that. Uh, So it's significant to me that there is one very specific rule given in Colossians 3.21. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And I think about that a lot because it's actually really, really easy to fall into that mode as a parent, the provoking mode, basically to just bark out orders, to demand obedience, to threaten them for disobedience, To make everybody walk on eggshells around you or to be so strict that the kids don't even care to try. The New Testament reminds fathers to not just give boundaries to kids, but also to encourage them, to walk alongside them in keeping those boundaries, to let them know that you're rooting for them. You have to remind kids of that because when you drop a bunch of rules on someone, it doesn't really feel like you're on their side. It feels like you're coming down hard on them. They feel like rules are a punishment. They feel like you're not very kind whenever you lay a bunch of rules down. They feel like you're against them, that you're the enemy. But we know it's not that at all. Rules are for your good. They're not for your harm. They're not because somebody doesn't like you. I guess rules can be used that way. Rules can be overbearing. Rules can be given heartlessly or thoughtlessly. Rules can be given in a way just to frustrate you or enforced in a frustrating way. And you know this, um, if you have a if you have a boss or a manager or a business owner who just kind of like lays the rules down, but isn't very patient about applying them, you know that rules can be used to beat somebody over the head, or they can be given in a really unloving manner, but always keep it at the forefront whenever you have to give rules to to your kids or to whoever you're in authority over, 
Keep it at the forefront that you are on their side whenever you give those rules, that you're rooting for their success. God does have a lot of rules. I mean, I think that would be fair to say. God has a specific justice system uh, when it comes to getting saved. It's God's way or the highway. If you want to go to heaven, you got to drive down God's highway. And he had a very narrow and specific way to get to heaven. And God is not strict about those boundaries because he wants to make it hard to get to heaven. I mean, God wants everybody to come to him in repentance. He's not up in heaven just giggling over how many people are going to fail. He's not heartlessly watching people fail and then and watching them choose their own way. He says in Ezekiel 18.32, when we read it already, but let me read it again. He said, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. And if that sounds familiar to you, he, he basically said it earlier in verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? So God is all into this idea that you can make it to heaven. I mean, he is on your side, but you have to do it his way. God's justice and God's love are often pitted against each other. And, and these are two ditches that I can see many of us falling into as well. There's those who are probably those on the more theologically conservative side, um, kind of like the Pharisees. They can fall into that justice and judgment ditch where we just become hardliners about the rules, about the rules in the Bible. We're not always so patient to people or accepting of people who aren't following God well enough. And, and whenever you fall into that ditch, you can become more like the Marthas who get so busy for God, they miss out on opportunities to just sit at his feet. Then you have those on the more theologically liberal side who are all about God's love, but they often kind of like write off many rules in the Bible. They, they, they write off any impetus to follow those rules. And that's another extreme. That's another ditch that people can fall into. And so those are the two extremes that we want to stay away from. We want to strike the balance between them. And we also need to refrain from putting God into either of those extremes. And it's hard not to do that sometimes because <laughs> everything about God seems so extreme. I mean, God is just, but God is perfectly just. He must be justice to the max. On the other hand, God is love, but he's perfect love. He's ex as extreme as love can get. So God must love every person without limits or qualification, right? I mean, it's just easy to put God into extremes. And the truth is, we have to balance these ideas. Yes, God has rules and standards that we must live by. But also, God is completely committed to helping you accept and live by these standards. He is so committed to you choosing life, he will save you up until the moment you die, no matter what you've done. If you've walked away from him, he will always take you back when you come to him in repentance. We have to be careful not to put God into those extremes. You know, for us, we always cheer whenever the bad guy gets killed at the end of the movie, right? I mean, it is satisfying. We pump our fist in the air. We don't want to see them get away. <laughs> we want to see them pay. We feel a sense of relief when James Bond blows them off the cliff, right? When Sigourney Weaver pushes them out the airlock. When Thor finally goes for the head. And, and yes, I'm not saying that's always a bad thing because it, it, it takes the death of the wicked for justice to be done at times. I mean, I'm in favor of police. I'm in favor of the military. I'm in favor of the death penalty whenever it's applied in a just way. But it's a tragedy every time that somebody dies without redemption. 
you know, it's a, it's a, it's still a bad thing when somebody dies and goes to hell. We can say, oh yeah, but, but they deserve it. Well, let's just remember that we actually all deserve it. And God put himself into this world so that he could personally die for our sins so that nobody would have to go there. But every time someone does, it is by their own choice. And God takes no pleasure in it. We'll close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and some personal application of this chapter. If you have a question on anything we talked about today, just leave a comment or send us an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on what you'd like to hear me tackle in the future. And I do have a couple episodes coming up that I recorded with a friend of mine uh, who's actually a Bible prophecy expert, someone who's taught me many of the things that I know. So be on the lookout for those episodes to drop soon. Um, actually, I think I'm going to do one more Ezekiel episode before I get to those, but I've already got the interviews done. They're in the pipeline, so they will be coming up soon. And, uh, at the start of this episode, we discussed the idea of Jesus returning soon. And for most of us, it's probably not soon enough. Like we would have, we would like him to come back like right now, right? Like if I was, as I'm recording this, it's the start of April. And I was just looking at all my bills that I need to pay (laughs) over the next month. And I'm like, Jesus, it would be really awesome if you just came back before these are due. (laughs) So that's my plan. Plan A is Jesus coming back. Plan B is that I pay my bills on time, but the bank account goes down a little bit. So, Uh, but I am still hoping for plan A. I mean, I'm going to go ahead and schedule this episode to air in a few weeks. But if none of you hear it because you're out of here by the time it airs, um, then that would be just fine with me too. So... But in case we are all still here, and you might be wondering, why are we still here? Well, I said I would tell you today why Jesus hasn't come back yet. So let's talk about that. 2 Peter 3 actually gives us the exact reason why Jesus hasn't returned. It says in 2 Peter 3, starting at verse 3, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So he says, in the last days, before the Lord's return, one of the marks of the end is that there are going to be people going around who are denying the idea of another coming of Christ. They're saying, everything's just going to continue like it always has. Second Peter tells us that there was another time in history where a lot of scoffers would not take God's warning seriously. 2 Peter 3, verse 5. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. When it says the deluge right there, it's talking about the flood. Every society on earth, this is always interesting to me, but every society on earth, every civilization... They have ancient stories of the big flood that once covered the world. And historians often call these stories the Great Deluge. The the deluge was the flood. And at the time of the deluge, God had said he would send a flood over over the whole earth. And Peter tells us that there were scoffers then. There were people who never believed that God would actually destroy the whole world with this flood. They, They thought Noah 
going around talking about this all the time. They thought he was delusional. Okay, don't don't feel bad if you didn't laugh at that. Nobody ever laughs at that joke, <laughs> but I'm still kind of, I'm still kind of proud of it. So I keep trying to make it work. As Noah was building his boat, though, it actually says in the Bible he wasn't just being a carpenter twenty four seven working on that boat. He was trying to get people to come in. He was a preacher of righteousness. They he wanted people to get on this boat with him and be saved from the flood, but they didn't want to listen. They rejected the call. Not only did they not accept his offer of getting on the ark, on the ark, they scoffed at it. They said, God's not going to send a flood. God doesn't judge sin. God doesn't do things like that. We've never had a big flood before. You're building a boat in the middle of the desert for nothing. But God did it whenever he was ready. God did it in his timing. God sets the timetable. So what is God's timetable for when Jesus comes back? Well, let's continue at verse 7. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So in other words, what might seem like a long time to us, maybe it isn't such a long time to God or to a spouse who's still in the bathroom. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, God hasn't come back yet because he's waiting to give some more people a chance to get saved before the time is up. God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't even want anyone to be left behind. He's giving as many people as possible an opportunity to get saved before the rapture and this whole end of the world thing comes about. He hasn't forgotten about us, and he's not being slow. He's trying to give more people time to repent. There is this really famous book that was called 88 Reasons That God Is Going to Come Back in 1988. And this was a really, really popular book before 1988. I don't think it's such a bestseller now, but before 1988, people had the idea that Jesus was going to return in 1988. So why didn't Jesus come back in 1988? Well, I can actually give you the precise reason. Who got saved after 1988? Did you? Or do you know somebody who did get saved after 1988? I know I did. I wasn't even born yet in 1988. Most of us who are listening right now probably got saved after 1988. That's why Jesus didn't come back in 1988. He was waiting for you. He was waiting for you. He was waiting for me to get saved. If not you, probably many people that you know who are Christians. He was waiting for them to get saved. Jesus waited because he was waiting for all of us to become Christians so that your soul was safe. So we should be glad that he waited. <laughs> we should be thankful he didn't come back in 1988 because, hey, who knows an unsaved person out there, right? Which All of us know somebody who's not saved. Well, Jesus has not come back yet because he is waiting for them too. He's giving them more opportunity. He's not willing that any should perish. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, he is going to come back someday. I mean, someday that patience is going to run out. Someday it will be the time. That could be any moment, actually. 
but we should be thankful for the time that we have been given because he was waiting for us. So let's remember that while we're waiting for his soon arrival, that in the meantime, actually, we have a job to do. We don't, you know, we don't know how much time we have left to do it. So we need to stay after it. We need to stay busy. Just like I tried to do with, with that secretary being gone. And I was like, well, I'm just going to stay busy till she gets back. <laughs> Try to do as much as I can. Well, actually, it's the same with us and Jesus. Before Jesus left, he gave us a job to do. He gave us the Great Commission. He told us to take the gospel to every person. Every creature, it says. Every, it, I mean, that's actually what it says. Every creature. I even gave the gospel to my dog before. Just because it says, you know what? It says every creature. So I thought, well, most people probably aren't trying to get their dogs saved. I'll, I'll at least try with mine. It didn't work. He still poops on the floor sometimes. But hey, at least I tried. And, I, and I'm still rooting for him that he will choose life. We have to remember that as long as we're here, we are here for people. We're here to help get more of them to heaven. I, I want to end with this quote from the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, who reminded us how desperately that we should want to see people saved. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you to choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, except for my dog, we will serve the Lord.